Hello, hello, hello. How's everyone doing? Do us a quick favor. Um, if you're up in here and you have your social medias, give a uh, retweet, post on your Facebooks, post on your whatever social media you use, text your friends. Let's get some people up in here. I got a feeling we have a good one tonight, so let's just get as many people in here as we can. Hey Q, how's it going? Good, good. I'm about to send a link to Sean to come on through. How, how am I sounding, by the way? You sound pretty good. How do I sound? I'm using the the mic. Uh, you sound good, like a little bit, a uh, little bit tinny, but mostly okay. Okay. Yeah, I mean, I'm using the USB mic, so if this doesn't work, I don't know what else can. But <laughs> well, it's it sounds a lot better than the um, than the one that you were using last time. Yeah. Cool. Cool. So, yeah, I'm just going to send a link out to social media just to remind people we're up in here. And, um, cool. Oh, Sean's already here. Great. So, would you mind talking for a little bit, Q, while I um, just send out the link to letting people know that we're up in here? Yes, in fact, I do mind it. Um, (laughs) (laughs) Sean, how you doing, man? How are you? I'm doing all right. You know, yeah. and this whole story and everything published. So uh, yeah, yeah. Um, I also got to read through sh- some Columbia applications. So you know, a little this, a okay. little that. <laughs> right. Glad to share the stage with a um, a wrecker misogynist, uh, somebody who's tearing apart the movement from the inside. Always, always happy to hang out with the enemy <laughs> from within. Well, you know, uh, it's good to be here. <laughs> you really took that one in stride. Yeah, oh, I, Jesus you know, as people filter in, you know, it, the main thing with the reporting too is just that, um, you know, we pointed out some issues here, and people should take that into account whenever they're thinking about like who is uh, behind the movement, who's behind the money, where they're going to give money, all those things. Those are all the important things to really consider. Yeah. I think at the end of the day. Yeah, and I think it's important to uh, set a tone for the room for people to let mm-hmm. people know, basically, that uh, Sean is not here as a polemicist. He's not here, you know, to throw bombs. He is someone who is trying to have a very objective objective story in in the news. And that's one of the reasons why I wanted to have him here is because I felt like there was no one really talking about this. And I assume this because a lot of people, you know, in the mainstream or legacy media, whatever you want to call it, kind of didn't want to step on toes or didn't want to look racist or didn't want to, um, or maybe some of them were actually like, like friends with uh, people in Black Lives Matter, who knows. And then the people on the right kind of were bringing up necessary questions, but we're doing it in hyperbolic, you know, bomb throwing ways and taking it like too far so i saw different things in daily mail and washington examiner and all these different places like daily daily caller that were you know horrible in tone i don't want to have anybody like that to talk about this like i don't believe in the enemy of my enemies my friends type of thing but the only article i saw in the mainstream or so-called liberal or centrist media was Washington Post like last year. And that was such a puffball, uh, even as it was 
asking the questions, it was very much kind of pulling his punches. And I'm like, okay, that's bad too. And I felt mm-hmm. like Sean's was something that was firm but fair. And that's what I thought was uh, good. So please keep that in mind when posing Sean questions. Like, don't try to goad him into saying all types <laughs> of, uh, you know, things against Black Black Lives Matter. He's not here to be a, be a polemicist, just to talk about his reporting and talk about his findings. I mean, you as callers are free to express yourself as you want within reason, you know. But, uh, yeah, I just want people to keep to be mindful of uh, Sean's role in this story and, and, and this process. Yeah, and there's something else I wanted to talk about too, again, as people kind of filter in. Um, you mentioned some of the reporting in kind of the right-wing media or conservative media. Um, I think something to consider too when you're reporting on a sensitive issue and an issue like this is there's a difference between good faith reporting and bad faith reporting where I really did make an effort to talk to as many people and get as many perspectives as I could on this. Um, even when I had some findings and things together, the organizations and plenty of other people knew way more about things than were in the story. I wanted to give everybody a chance to comment um, and basically how I was taught to do journalism, regardless of whatever you're doing, uh, People might not like what you're saying, but they shouldn't be surprised. So you give every opportunity for people to respond, which we did here. Um, and also just talking to as many people who are as close to the organization, as close to the movement and on the ground as I could, you know, within the time we had. And let me just give, I'm doing this in reverse. I should have done this first, but let me give an introduction uh, to let people know who Sean is. This is Sean Campbell. He's an investigative journalist. And from what I can see, an actual investigative journalist, not like an influencer turned uh, journalist. And I don't say it to disparage people, but to say that there's a certain, I think, caliber of reporting that shows in this. And in addition, he's an adjunct professor in the Columbia Graduate School of Journalism. And he did a recent article that was titled for New York Magazine, The Murky Finances of Black Lives Matter. And if you search on Google, the murky finances of Black Lives Matter, or look in the description to this episode, you'll see the link to it. I hope people had a chance to read it beforehand, but if not, I mean, I feel confident that Sean, in the course of taking us through the reporting, can do a good job of summarizing his own article as as well and giving us the main uh, bullet points of it. Yeah, that sounds good. Uh, so, you know, whenever you guys are ready, I can kind of go through it or... We can wait and talk a little bit more, but no, yeah, no, I, no. You, you go ahead. We're okay. Go. Yeah. So, um, yeah, basically, uh, what we found in the reporting here uh, was, as had been reported in uh, um, last year and uh, um, leading up to it, there, Black Lives Matter, the organization, Black Lives Matter Global Network Foundation, received. Uh, it reported $90 million in finances or in donations. Uh, and within this, uh, roughly 30 million or so was given out to local groups, but the, some of the local groups were saying they hadn't received the money yet uh, up until the point of uh, mid-year or later mid-year. So this kind of piqued my interest um, in terms of 
when I was working on a project for New York Magazine, just looking into funding for uh, Black Lives Matter movement uh, and seeing like this. And then also, you know, there was the things with Patrice Colors and the multiple homes uh, that made me want to interrogate this issue a little bit more. And basically what I found was like of this 90 million, um, people were really concerned about the financial transparency in and around the Black Lives Matter Global Network Foundation. Where was the money going? How is it being spent? People have been raising these issues. Chapters have been raising this issue uh, before there was ever a statement. Uh, there's also the BLM 10, which uh, was a group that was started uh, in November of 2020 as they started to coalesce around this idea of we want to know where the money is going. We want to know uh, how our dollar, uh, the donation dollars are being spent and also where's uh, some of our funding. Um, so going off of that, talking with people, talking with local leader or activists, uh, it, it gets to be a complicated issue because we're talking about a big, biggish uh, national organization that also has the name Black Lives Matter. Now, there's a complicating factor here because if you look up Black Lives Matter on any kind of a search of nonprofits uh, or even if you were to look up trademarks or the phrase Black Lives Matter, you're going to get a bunch of hits. So people don't necessarily know where to give money uh, or uh, uh, how the money is going to be used once it's given, but they trust in the Black Lives Matter Global Network. Uh, that's the name. It has the three charismatic leaders uh, heading the organization. Well, founders. Now it's just, it was just Patrice Colors. But um, people knew that name, knew that brand, and they gave their money there in the wake of George Floyd. There was, as everyone who's on this call, I'm sure is aware, there was a huge outcry with the murder of George Floyd. And people wanted to help. People wanted to get involved. Not everyone can protest, but sometimes people just want to donate money. This also created a large media kind of uh, attention in and around Black Lives Matter as an issue, not that there wasn't there before, but this was a huge surge where uh, something that's a little unique here in this moment is that it becomes a bit more fashionable to identify with Black Lives Matter, and with that comes uh, corporate influence, uh, so some of the leaders within the organization, we found not only were they, um, you know, they, they're within collecting donations, but they're also getting corporate sponsorships. And at the same time, they're local leaders who are struggling to make it financially. Uh, in the in the piece, um, I, I mentioned uh, Tory Johnson and BLM Huntington Beach, uh, where he was trying to organize against a a, a white supremacy rally. Um, and at the same time, Patrice Colors was doing a uh, online electric slide dance show. So there was a big difference here between what was happening with this Global Network Foundation and what seemed to be happening on the ground. So then it's talking to people, figuring out what and how long this kind of dissonance had been happening within uh, the movement. And when I say movement, I like to refer to it as modern civil rights. Uh, I think it's a little problematic to refer to it as uh, the Black Lives Matter movement. It is we, we, we know it colloquially as the Black Lives Matter movement, but as we see with the Global Network Foundation and the myriad of uh, organizations that have that name, 
it becomes very difficult to tease apart who's doing what and where donations are being given. Um, even large corporations made the mistake, which I pointed out BuzzFeed News had uh, um, noted uh, um, for the Black Lives Matter Foundation, which is not the Black Lives Matter Global Network Foundation. And as I talk, even I hear it, you know, you say it so many times, there's so many phrases, so many words that come with this. But the big thing here is that within this global network, it itself has multiple entities and names associated with it, all with some form of that name. Black Lives Matter Network, Black Lives Matter Global Network, Black Lives Matter Network Action. So even within the group, it's hard to tease out where the money's going. And they've also been fiscally sponsored. So a fiscal sponsor is a normal thing in nonprofits, but it's usually used with fledgling nonprofits, ones that are just getting started. Years on, especially when there's millions of dollars involved, it's less common. It's not like it's totally uncommon, but it's less common. What I found here with Black Lives Matter was there seemed to be a high kind of a, a cut that the fiscal sponsor was taking compared to how much uh, um, is standard within the industry for how much money Black Lives Matter was bringing in. So there's a loss there. Plus there's also a loss of transparency because when you have a fiscal sponsor, they lump in all of these uh, financial details and tax filings where the organization itself is not filing its taxes to where you can see where the money is being given. So that's the first layer of uh, um, loss of transparency. And then there's also what the organization itself is saying in terms of who's affiliated with the organization, how many chapters there are. This number has changed and fluctuated over time. And even when you look at different websites associated with Black Lives Matter, the numbers can vary, can change. In a report I found in 2017, uh, celebrating the four-year anniversary of Black Lives Matter, there were 45 chapters. Before the chapters were removed from the website, the Black Lives Matter website, there were 17. And now we don't know who's affiliated, who's not affiliated. There isn't a list that's on the website. So it's hard to tease apart who is still uh, uh, under the label of the Black Lives Matter Global Network Foundation. Uh, and then there was also complicating issues with Patrice Colors' nonprofits uh, in California and how the money was being spent. Because with some of those nonprofits, I focused in on um, Reform LA Jails. It was, a, it was a successful initiative that they had in LA but a large chunk of the money that was raised went to consultant firms that were closely connected uh, with Patrice Colors. And part of one of the new things started by Black Lives Matter is the Black Lives Matter Political Action Committee. The Political, the political Action Committee paid almost $150,000 to the uh, father of Patrice Colors' child, which is more money than Black Lives Matter paid on all of its Facebook ads. So all of the Facebook ads that you see that get promoted that would be pushed out through Facebook. From 2013 on, they spent more on a live stream of an election event that was produced by Patrice Colors' uh, the father of, of her child. Um, and people have been speaking out and they, when they started speaking out, they would usually uh, get talked down. Um, and this is an issue again that had seemed to be persisting for years after talking with people. 
And you mentioned before uh, T that when you looked in the media uh, that there was, you only found a Washington Post article. Um, if, you, if you dig a little deeper, you could see that BuzzFeed had done some reporting on this. Uh, I want to make sure I get his name right. Um, there was a, his name is Darren Sands. Uh, he had an article for it as one. In oh, this kind of oh yeah, actually, they, they remember that. You're right. It slipped my mind. Yeah. So this, these have been issues that have been percolating and have been circulating for years. It hadn't been covered to a very large extent, but this isn't something that it's, it, I would say it wasn't interrogated as much as maybe it should have been through good faith reporting where I, I, I made the effort to talk to as many people as I could talk to, look through financials, look through all sorts of things, find receipts, not making any assumptions or not writing with a, a tone that would imply um, something that was less uh, was untoward and you know ran my findings and everything past nonprofit experts uh, there were I think three people who were nonprofit experts quoted in the piece and I talked to I think about like eight or nine others so um, or nine eight or nine in total uh, so there was a lot that went into it that you don't necessarily see in the story. So I feel like I've been talking for a while now, so I'll pause. I think those are the main points. Um, I'm kind of uh, rattling it off. Um, but yeah, if there's... Oh, oh yeah, I mean, that's, that's fine with me. I've been, I've been riveted, so that's not a problem. But um, Q, do you have anything you want to ask? And in the meantime, I want to tell people, you don't have to wait for us to queue you to get into the call to queue. You can start lining up from now. We're, go we're going to try to um, be brisk with the call to queue today and not let people sit in it for for too long. But, um, yeah, Q, I feel like I haven't given you a chance to speak too much today. So, Okay. Um, the question I have is a question that I think was on a lot of people's minds when the article came out, which is, why run this in New York Magazine? Uh, why not a black-run publication? Yeah. Um so first, I was approached by uh, uh, Morgan and Lindsay Peoples with New York Magazine for a general assignment of looking at funding in and around uh, Black Lives Morgan, Matter. You mean Morgan Jerkins, right? Morgan Jerkins, yes. Yeah. Uh, so this wasn't a story that I had been like really uh, – like I've been twiddling my thumbs just thinking how I was going to publish about Black Lives Matter uh, and all of these – untoward finances um i approached this very broadly and this is where i zeroed in on um after getting the assignment for new york magazine the issue itself is in uh, um remembrance because i don't want to say you know it's been 10 years since trayvon martin died um i don't want to use any celebratory language around that uh so 10 years in remembrance of trayvon martin being killed, an entire issue that would be dedicated to this in a thoughtful way, in a creative way of really interrogating all of what's been happening within the modern civil rights, that was very appealing to me. So that's why New York, New York Magazine, even as I was reporting on this, I bumped into some of the other writers in my reporting, and it is, it is a challenge uh, to to think about how what you say, what you do might be twisted in other areas. 
you know, you mentioned uh, alt-right or conservative. But, you know, at the end of the day, I still feel that truth wins out. And what I reported here was the truth as I found it. And I gave them, I gave any any mention, anyone who was in there, even if they had a cursory uh, one sentence, the opportunity to see what I had and respond to it. Um, so that's why I'd say New York Magazine. It could have been done in a black publication, but it a black publication did not reach out to me to cover the story, and this is a story that I felt needed to be told, and uh, Morgan and Lindsay had a very thoughtful and interesting way of looking at the issue as a whole. Not just the Black Lives Matter Global Network Foundation, but everything in and around the issue that really intrigued me. Uh, something I've been wondering, and you mentioning that Morgan Jurgens and uh, Lindsay uh, reached out to you to do this, I was wondering within, um, you know, black journalism circles, if mm-hmm. some of the luster has kind of worn off with Black Lives Matter. Because one thing that kind of surprised me when you, your article came out was how many people who I thought, you know, I could not imagine um, cheering an article like this were kind of cheering the article and I mean, when I say I can't imagine them cheering it, I mean in terms of um, everybody seemed to be kind of rooting for Black Lives Matter, I feel like, in uh, in those types of circles. And I was wondering if, um, in your experience, you feel like there's been, like, like this has been kind of building or if this is something that's kind of blindsided uh, people. What do you mean? I'm I'm not sure what you mean. Um, okay, I, I guess what I guess what I mean is, I feel there was a um, very positive stance toward Black Lives Matter in a lot of um, what's the word I'm looking for? Dr- black journalism circles. I feel mm-hmm. um, where there was a lot of benefit of the doubt that you know they got. There was a lot of um, kind of collaboration, friendly, friendly writing. I, I don't want to wor- use the word like blue checks, but that's the only thing I can uh, really think of. And I and I noticed that there was just a lot of, um, I thought when your article came out, there'd be a lot more pushback against it from notable people, but I did not kind of see that really. I thought if anything, mm-hmm. a lot of people seemed um, to be all, all in on supporting the article and I was wondering yeah. if that's something that surprised you if that's if there's been a general tone in journalism circles being that you're in academia you're in uh journalism circles if there's been like rumblings or you know people have been talking for a while like something funny is going on I hope that question is kind of clear okay uh, I, I think I got it um and you know I can't speak to what any other publication chooses to publish or not publish or what any other reporter might be thinking in terms of, you know, agreeing with the article or, you know, there isn't really much to, I'd say, agree or disagree with. These were the facts as I found them. Um, So part of, I think, what goes into it, and I have been a little surprised that um, how positive the reaction has been myself, because, I mean, I I, I struggled with just the facts as I was finding them. I mean, you know, when, when Eric, Gardner was strangled in New York. I, I marched. 
you know, this is before I became a journalist, before I even thought about becoming a journalist. Like, I just felt so affected by that moment that I was out in the streets. And to be reporting on something like this and to come across things that maybe you don't, you don't want to find these truths, but you find them, and that's my job. So I put it out there, and I put it out there plain, and we, everything that we had was checked, double-checked, and we had fact-checkers go over it. So, um, and everyone, again, was talked to. Uh, not only did I talk to him, but then somebody else independently came behind me to verify that I talked to him. So I think when you see support behind a thing or that it's received positively and there aren't attacks behind it, I would question, like, what is there to attack? I have the receipts for these things. These are filings. People know what the filings were. I have named sources. If anyone questions whether the sources uh, um, actually said those things to me, then they can uh, um, talk to them. Uh, That's part of the authority that goes behind um, having named sources and building trust with sources that they actually don't think that you're going to twist their words because they believe in your reporting. They believe uh, in your efforts to really try and get at the truth. So that that's, I guess that is the closest I could say to that. The rumblings, I mean, there's always going to be rumblings and things like that. But at the end of the day, the organization chose not to respond to anything I had except for maybe one line of, of clarification about uh, whether or not uh, uh, Patrice Colors and uh, Opal Tomati, uh, Tomati uh, and Alicia Garza were together um, organizing in L.A. Other than that, they did not respond to very detailed findings that they had well in advance. So I think it's kind of weird that they responded to one thing than if they responded to nothing at all, because that means that they were getting your questions and they were actively dodging them for them to come back and just cherry pick one thing to respond that's just something that so I'll, I'll say, yeah and i'll just say you know i can't speculate on that um i can just say that they had the they had the they had my findings they had my questions and they did not respond to most of what was in that article uh one point was a clarification point um so that is what they responded to. Uh, other than that, you know, I, can't, I I don't want to speculate, honestly. I don't think it's fair to the organization. I don't think it's fair to anyone in the piece because they haven't had a chance to respond to that. I'm sorry if I'm being a little, you know, journalistic ethics kind of thing on that. Uh, but, um, yeah, it's, a, it's I think the issue is too important to speculate on those kinds of things. Um, so I... I'm not. I'm not going to. I'm not even going to say. I'd rather not. I'm just not going to. To why they did or did not respond. I did have one more question to ask before we go to the call to D and the Q. And you said you were speaking to nonprofit um, experts, and maybe you can answer a question that I had as mm-hmm. someone who's not who's not a nonprofit expert. Um, were you able to figure out? I mean, you couldn't figure out directly from them because they didn't respond to you. But at least from other nonprofit experts who could like speculate and clue you in why they were in that fiscal sponsorship situation for so long and if that's odd because to me it seems kind of odd that you're making that much money you're that Mm -hmm. big and 
you go that long staying as a Delaware incorporation? Because to my understanding, being a Delaware corporation allows you to withhold a lot more financial transparency than if you're a nonprofit. Okay. And I was wondering so, if anybody could give you an explanation for that. Yeah. So, um, for one thing, uh, Delaware is just where they incorporated, um, and they incorporated a number of entities there. Whether or not you're a nonprofit, that's a filing status thing. Whether you're filing as uh, just a basic corporation, a non-stop corporation, or you're filing as a 501c3 nonprofit, that's what people generally think of when they think of as nonprofits, uh, or a 501c4, which is like a nonprofit that's going to engage in politics. So uh, incorporating in Delaware, a lot of places incorporate in Delaware. It's mostly just like Delaware has the most up-to-date laws uh, in and around corporate financing. So a lot well, of it... Delaware is also more or less a tax, like a non-shore tax haven. Like a lot of companies incorporate in Delaware because of the favorable tax rates. For, for example, you know, Facebook yeah. is essentially a stack of paperwork in a filing cabinet somewhere in Delaware. <laughs> that, that is part of it. But it is also there's – a, there's a good legal reason to it as well. Um, which is the laws in and around Delaware are also favorable in a number of ways. Um, so in terms of taxes, you know, that could be part of it. As I've looked into it, the biggest reason is legally. You get more coverage, you get all sorts of things, uh, up-to-date laws. So Delaware is just unique like that. So I, I wouldn't read too much in all of that just to say I wouldn't read too much into them incorporating in Delaware. Uh, oh yeah, yeah. I don't know the Delaware part, but the for but the for profit part specifically. For profit part. So the for profit, uh, that is different. Um, and there, were, the for profit entity was dissolved in 2020. Um, so, you know, there could be a number of reasons why an organization might choose to have a for profit, nonprofit, political. And have multiple names, um, and and some of them can be very legitimate. Some could also even have to deal with. And so I'm being very broad in saying this because I can't say for certain why they did certain things. But a, for instance, could be they didn't think to necessarily file. And this is something I heard from experts. Um, didn't think to necessarily file as a 501. C3, a standard nonprofit, they filed that and they're like, oh, actually, we need to file as a nonprofit. That's a perfectly reasonable explanation. I don't think we have enough, inf we don't have enough knowledge of their finances to say one way or another, but it is messy with all the different names, all the different organizations. That is one thing that um, was unique about that uh, uh, situation that was going on there. And the fiscal yeah. sponsorship. Go on, you're going to say? Oh, oh, no, I was going to say, yeah, there are like plenty of legit legitimate reasons, and that's one reason why fiscal sponsorships even exist. I guess what struck me as odd was that they stayed that way for about six years. Yeah. And they promised pretty early on that they were, that it was just a temporary thing to, um, mm -hmm. you know, until they became a uh, nonprofit. And then six years passed. And again, I know you can't speculate specifically as to them. That's why I kept mm -hmm. it broad and said, you know, yeah. in general, does it tend to be reasonable that people will stay that way for like, for like six for years? Multiple years. Yeah. Yeah, so, yeah, exactly. I think the issue is more to what you hit on where there was um, 
statements that this we're going to be moving on. We're going to be doing our own thing. Even in their own impact statement, they said they're building the foundation. Um, and as far as I can tell, they were uh, still with the Tides Foundation. So um, that's, I think, the larger issue. When we talk about fiscal sponsors and nonprofits being with fiscal sponsors, some do make a strategic choice to stay fiscally sponsored for multiple years. Uh, usually it's like they maybe they're not good at administrative work or they don't want to handle that. They want to focus on the mission X, Y, and Z. So they stay with their fiscal sponsor as a way of uh, having a lot of the back house work go through them and they pay them their fee and that's fine. Um, now, I think what we have an issue here with the Black Lives Matter Global Network Foundation is there wasn't an explicit statement of that and how much of that work was actually being done. And when I asked, how much did you pay? The exact number was not stated to me. I can tell you there's 15% of their revenues and as was in the story, how much for Thousand Currents, for instance, had jumped. Tides Foundation did not tell me how much they had collected from Black Lives Matter Global Network Foundation. So there's a discordance between what's being said and what seems to be like we're going to be starting our own thing. We're going to be doing our own thing. And then there's still the fiscal sponsorship. And if you're going to use the fiscal sponsor, then be transparent about it and why you're doing it. That's the overarching, I think, end of the day lesson here with Black Lives Matter, uh, aside from the most important thing of their, their, when donors donate, they want funding to be happening for on the ground actions. But the big thing here is there, there isn't a, there isn't transparency. I asked who's leading the organization right now and did not get a response to that. That's a basic question of uh, straight nonprofit governance that if you're being transparent, you say this person is leading or we're in a moment of transitional flux for whatever reason. You can say whatever your reason is or, or even not say and then to say this is how we're currently doing our governance. There wasn't that kind of a transparent answer. So the, the issue here, I would say, with maintaining fiscal sponsorships for such a long period of time, well, not such a long period of time, it's seven years, it's not like we're talking 30 years, yeah. But for maintaining a, a, fiscal, a fiscal sponsorship for that time, then transferring once you've received a lot of money to another fiscal sponsor, um, which could also make sense too, it's a whole lot of money and tides is larger than thousand currents. Uh, but saying why you're doing these things, especially for something that is under such a microscope, whether right or wrong, I mean, it's we as black people know that everything we do is going to be scrutinized in the real world. So having that knowledge and that fact, even if it's unfair, it's almost modus operandi to just be more transparent. But there isn't any transparency here, even on basic issues, or not basic issues, basic questions. And that to me was very surprising. And even regardless of some of the... um, other issues there. It's, I, I feel like I should know, any donor should know where Black Lives Matter Global Network Foundation is based, what that address is, and that it's not a 
a PO box or something like that, and who's leading the organization? Because who, 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 who's driving the mission? Who's determining where all these funds that everybody has questions about transparency there? Who's determining all of this? And oh, yeah. can see there's questions about how the money's being spent elsewhere. Yeah, yeah, for sure. And I'm going to pass it off to uh, the caller D right now. If you wouldn't mind just unmuting yourself, you've been patiently waiting. And by the way, anyone else who wants to uh, speak, either to directly ask Sean a question or just to give your thoughts on Black Lives Matter in general, where they've been, where they've headed, if you feel disappointed, if you're still supporting them, by all means, get in the queue and we'll get to you pretty soon. Hey, can you guys hear me? Yeah, you sound perfectly clear. Thanks for hey, joining Trevor. us. Hey, Trevor. Hey, Sean. Hey, Q. Um, hey, one thing I wanted to say hey. is I've kind of been kind of off the, I think the reason that people were so hesitant to kind of look at them is because part of the problem has been that one, I think the actual phrase Black Lives Matter means so many things. So like there are a lot of us, because I know uh, Trevor, you've been uh, pretty critical of uh, sort of the, uh, you're critical of a lot of the kind of cultural trappings and you're good at like kind of tweeting out them. Um, You've been critical of Black Lives Matter, but I think there's been a defense of them because we see the reactionaries like the Ben Shapiro's talk about Black Lives Matter. So I think even the semantic word of it has been tricky because it's like we defend the movement within the context of the actual movement in some ways, but the organization has been a problem, but you can't really differentiate it. Uh, but for for me, an issue came when they started kind of promoting um, sort of just blanket academia talking points around like, you know, getting rid of the family. I don't know if you guys remember this, but they had um, on MLK Day last year, they had a, a woman twerking. <laughs> And then they're like, this is how black women are going to be liberated. And I was like, okay, this movement is not run by like serious, you know, people who are working on the ground. Because I can't imagine Darren Seals imagining like a woman twerking and saying that that's empowering and with, you know, within the Black Lives Matter movement. So uh, there was a passage from Sean's, there was a passage from Sean's article that jumps out at me where um, very early in the article it says, Kissini. Um, Kayana Selena, a longtime organizer, recalls an early meeting that Coolers attended in Los Angeles. Quote, she was not talking logistics about what we were going to be doing out in the streets, she says. She was talking about what people should be hashtagging. And that just reminded me of what you said about not being serious people. Because what jumped out at me was, there was a part of me that wondered at some point, was, there, was she a serious organizer who's you know kind of lost her way but i will say that kind of surprised me about sean's article when um kayana selena kind of made it seem like from the beginning she was more into the hashtagging than the actual logistics and um grassroots organizing and i have to go here but i do think ironically <laughs> the fact that like the identity helped because i can't imagine I can't imagine brothers like if this were if this movement was perceived to be run by like say three black men and their finances were murky. There's no way in heck that people would just be this like oh we, yeah we don't know where the money is. They brought four houses like there's no way that like 
the blue checks would be as sanguine as if Trevor Q and Sean had an organization that raised $90 million and no one knew where the money was. So I just wanted to put that in as well. Uh, something I want to ask Sean related to what yeah. you just said, D. The, um, the $90 million is not everything, right? That's kind of um, a small uh, time frame, right? Because a lot of what's been kind of raised is kind of hard to pin down since it was done during the for-profit doesn't need to be transparent era. Is that is that fair to say that the $90 million is, is is not a total picture of how much money is at stake, just kind of what they admitted to? So um, I'll say, yeah, it's not the total picture, but there is, and I did look through all the financial audits, uh, at least going back to 2005 for 1,000 currents, um, just to see. I'm, I, I'm a nerd like that. Like I looked through not just when uh, there was uh, uh, Black Lives Matter, but what it was like for the organization as a whole. So um, for the money that was allocated, or and especially and like explicitly marked Black Lives Matter money with thousand currents, uh, we're talking a few million um, between uh, uh, about one point five and maybe three point five million from year to year. Uh, so. There were millions, at least, and I'm and I'm going by what is reported. Um, I again, I won't. I want to speculate on any hidden money that might not be there. Just taking it on face value of what's in the financial documents. Um, that uh, uh, there were there were millions that were raised, but George Floyd was a huge year where every I, I want to say every, but like a whole lot of people just started donating money. Corporations were throwing in money left and right um you know uh, apple microsoft and others uh, were so eager to donate money to black lives matter they almost gave it to a completely different foundation uh so the george floyd was very unique in that regard um and i don't have any reason to believe or suspect that there was that the the 90 million that they said that they made in 2020 is a fraction of the total money raised it's not all of it there is more that was out there, um, but I think 2020 was likely the banner year, and there was a whole lot of funds that came from that. I think that's also why you had chapters even becoming – I don't even say I don't think. I know that's why chapters started becoming more vocal about what's happening with the money. There had always been these kinds of questions, and again, I can refer back to previous reporting that has been done on that that kind of pointed at this. Uh, in addition to, to my reporting that uh, um, I have on this, but that um, there's so much money and people know there's so much money. There's a lot of public announcements being made by celebrities and corporations about how much money is coming in that people really want to know where it's going. And also, if I'm doing on the ground organizing, how, how, how are you going to help and support me in that? Um, so I, 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 I want to be clear about that, that 2020 – as far as I can tell, represents the vast majority of funds that was collected, but there were other funds, and they're not insignificant or small amounts. Um, there could be other money that went to other areas, but again, in face value, what was reported for Black Lives Matter Global Network Foundation, then $90 billion is the big, big chunk. Uh, and also to say, that's a lot of money, regardless of whether or not you, uh, there's other monies that are out there that haven't been um you know tracked or something like that 
$90 million is a, is a lot of money for grassroots organizing. Maybe not in the, in the, in the space of say, you know, Doctors Without Borders or a billion dollar nonprofit, but for grassroots organizing, $90 million is a lot of money. And at, at, if you take away the 30 million some odd dollars that they pledge to local groups, that's $60 million in reserve. And that $60 million, as far as we can tell up to this point, we don't know who is controlling where that money is going. So that's a lot of money to not understand oh, what's happening there and to not have financial clarity around and a lack of transparency. And also to have local chapters, have local organizers be struggling while there's all this money that's still kind of just in limbo. Um, so want to want to be clear about that. And also, and you know, the organizers and the uh, leaders and other folks, they have their own private lives uh, where they can collect money on their own, uh, not as like donations, but you know, they they got their sponsorships and all those things, which um, there's nothing saying they can't do that. I will say that. Um, but I do want to go back to one point um, that D raised where uh, you can't really differentiate. Um, I think that is an important point between the movement and uh, the, the organization. Uh, that's part of what I think we, we should, as people who are looking to donate to organizations uh, or help the movement, uh, the broader civil rights movement, um, is really do that little bit of extra work in terms of figuring out where the money's going, who we're actually supporting here. Because there was a large push and kind of a meshing and um, kind of a, 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 um, a, a, I'm blanking on the word, but basically it became very difficult to disentangle the Black Lives Matter organization and modern civil rights, but everybody knew Black Lives Matter as the phrase that was catchy and started trending on social after the death of uh, uh, Tamir Rice, um, started trending in, in, in large in large quantities. Uh, there's peer research that you can Anyone who's curious, you can look up uh, the trending of the hashtag to see that, um, how, how much it just shut off. And then it just exploded with George Floyd. So we can differentiate all of that to say, but it takes a little bit more work on our part in terms of who we're supporting and to not, which may be in part a, an issue when we're talking about media who are maybe less familiar with these issues or not a part of uh, say the black community, why they wouldn't want to or they'd be hesitant to tackle an issue um, because you don't want to come off as saying you're talking out against the movement uh, or really getting clear like what's the movement what's the organization those kinds of things it is difficult but I think it is doable and I think I I did that in my piece and really really tried to make it as clear as possible like where does the organization stop and everything else begins so it is possible we can do that. Um, just because it's hard, I don't think we shouldn't uh, make that effort. We are where we are, basically. Um, All right, and I want to uh, move to our next caller. Andy, if you have a question. And just a quick note, if you need Sorry. to mute, oh, yeah. unmute. 
Yeah. Um, yeah, lower right hand corner. <laughs> also, thanks to D for his question. Yes, thank you. Uh, hi. Yeah, I mean, you got. I don't know if you guys. I came in a little bit late, um, but I, and 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 the D's question actually kind of sparked this, and then I think, Sean, maybe you kind of started to answer this, but um, I was kind of curious. Like, does anyone know how that meshing of like calling the protests? Black Lives Matter protests and the organization. I mean, was that just a big PR thing that, that happened? Um, how did that really happen? Because like, just as an outside observer, I always thought of them as kind of Black Lives Matter protests. And then I started watching um, Trevor's live streams. And, you know, he was actually the first person I ever saw say, hey, these are not Black Lives Matter protests, like these are protests about the killing of George Floyd. And there's this separate organization called Black Lives Matter. And uh, I'm just kind of curious if, if anyone knows, like, how that happened. And then that's I can give a personal, oh, I can give a personal I theory. I have one okay. other question too, just, just in, in relation to that. Like, is there another historical example of a protest movement, like you're calling this like the modern civil rights, being synonymous with an organization. I've never, I can't think of one. I'm just kind of curious. Uh, and, and then I, I'm, I'm done, so you can kick me out. Okay, I was going to give my my personal answer to the first question, then kick it over to the, to the other two for whatever else they wanted to say. But I only jumped in because you brought up my live stream video. Um, the reason why I said that was because I was attending some George Floyd protest where I would sometimes know the person, even if it was just as an acquaintance that, you know, was organizing the thing or something, but then would keep getting reported on as a Black Lives Matter protest. But then I started realizing that at all these protests, they kept saying Black Lives Matter as a chant. So I think so for reporters or people who are casually um, acquainted with the Black Lives Matter movement, they, or who just, you know, come in with a pre-existing narrative in their head. If you go there, you just hear the phrase over and over, Black Lives Matter, Black Lives Matter, is chanted from beginning to end. So I think even if it's not an official Black Lives Matter protest, even in an unofficial way, just by the fact that that's chanted so much, it kind of resonates in your head as Black Lives Matter protest. Like that phrase would be ringing in my ears coming home from these George Floyd protests. So that's my personal theory, is just that people say it there a lot. So, you know, and if anyone else has any other theory, I'm open to it too. I don't think mine is a definitive one. It's just mm -hmm. my my personal observation. I know yeah. I think it was um, a fairly well-coordinated um, PR and branding effort to name the protest movement after the organization itself. So what I'll say is... Um... I'll refer back to some of the reporting that's in the story and um, to to your to your question, Andy. Um, so I'm gonna I'm gonna read a little bit from the piece here. This is from uh, Justin Hansford, uh, who's a professor, a law professor at Howard University. Uh, they tell a story that makes it seem like the creation of their hashtag was the start of the movement. Hansford says, "I don't think they have directly told lies about their role, but they have a really inflated sense of self-importance in terms of the movement." He adds, imagine that during the civil rights movement, you had the SCLC, you had the NAACP, you had the Urban League, and imagine some group just called themselves Civil Rights Movement, Inc. 
So there, is, there doesn't seem to be a precedent that's like this. As, as Hans Herd was pointing out, and as you yourself kind of noted, uh, Andy. Um, but part of this too is that from my reporting and what I got from my sources, and then um, even doing some 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 research here and there, is that the they had been called out on that the Black Lives Matter organization saying that you guys we were making a clear stance here as opposed to like where where does your organization stop and the grassroots organizing begin as I've talked with uh, people who were organizing during that time um, and uh, people connected to the organization there were supposed to be kind of codified rules uh, around uh, 2015 or so when uh, um, there were agreements that were going to be made and there were promises that – or there were, there were agreements that just weren't being kept. And part of that was not making that clear delineation between Black Lives Matter, the phrase, that statement of fact that cannot be trademarked in the organization, the Black Lives Matter Global Network. Um, so – that's part of the complicating factor here, uh, and that there was also not a clear effort to really say we are not the movement. If anything, there is a suggestion of the opposite. Uh, it, as Black Lives Matter on the website um, even has its hashtag her story, and it's talked about a lot like that. So that invites a kind of uh, conflation of where where the movement, the modern civil rights movement, and where uh, Black Lives Matter, the organization, is beginning and ending, and also the idea that they're they're a leader leaderful organization, no true leader, but everybody can take up the take up the mantle of Black Lives Matter and go and start their own thing. Um, that kind of idea uh, also complicates things in that way, but also in a way that isn't necessarily authentic because there is an executive or there was, there was an executive director. We don't know exactly who's the executive director right now, but there is a clear leadership structure behind the organization because that's how organizations operate as nonprofits. Something that jumps out at me too is if you have the same name as the move as the movement, your organization, when corporations and big stars are lazily just signing over money to donate, it becomes a no-brainer to just donate to you. Like if I'm if I'm donating to the civil rights movement and there's a big organization bigger than all the other ones and it's called, like you said, Civil Rights Inc., then these accountants and stuff, they're not gonna or these stars people, they're not gonna waste a lot of time just trying to dig and whatever. It's gonna go right to that person. And I think that really helped them with the fundraising too, because after George Floyd, there were so many protests that they had nothing to do with, but somehow every single person, John Cena, um, who were those uh, K-pop people? Is it B2K or BTS, BTS Army, whatever? Yeah, they donated a whole bunch. So even from Korea, you know, it's like, hey, uh, Black Lives Matter, the chant, Black Lives Matter, the org, here's uh, $10 million. So, I mean, I think it helps from a, from a money standpoint as well. Oh yeah, definitely. Um, uh, even though uh, they were unsuccessful in trademarking the phrase "Black Lives Matter," um, there was a 
very um, like the the, the media. Why wow, he just he, he just blew past that? Hold on, hold on, back up. I didn't even know that part. I had no idea. I said that earlier. Trade market. Oh, I missed it. My bad. Oh, wow. So yeah, I, I missed it. Tried to trade market. There was that was in 2018. That's in the that's not in um, my story, but that's a part of my reporting. That you know, it's just it doesn't not make sense. Um, you know, especially if it's your hashtag. You came up with that. Um, so I, again, I want to speculate on motives there, especially when I didn't hear hear back on those things. But yeah, they they were a a filing of a trademark for Black Lives Matter. And the patent office said, you can't trademark this. This is a state. This is a phrase. This is a statement of fact. It's already in common usage. You can't do it. Um, but uh, the media branding around it and discussion around it uh, is such that it does invite a conflation between the movement and the organization itself. Uh, I, the organization was, uh, it won um, the Sydney Prize from Australia, uh, I, I, from Sydney University. Um, like I think it's called the Sydney Peace Prize uh, for you know their role in the movement. Um, and in uh, 2020, uh, they're nominated, or 2021, I guess, they're nominated for Nobel Prize. Um, so all of this goes with, I think, a lot of um, consistent messaging in and around uh, the phrase and the use of it. And then also, um, as people look, and there's a certain amount of trust, like a lot of people, present company included, want the movement to succeed and want, uh, um, you know, want to believe that anybody who's in this area is operating in good faith and being transparent. So to have a group that is saying that it has all of these chapters, all these blankets and everything underneath them, there isn't, on the face of it, when you're looking and you're just trying to find a place to donate, uh, any reason to distrust that. I mean, as I've reported, I mean, there's some serious questions uh, now uh, after having people talk out about it uh, more publicly um, and give their statements and then also seeing exactly how much money was coming in. Um, so, yeah, there's it's unique in that it, there is this conflation between the movement and the organization. Um, but I also don't want to say that people are in any way wrong for donating to the organization. You, you want, when you believe in something, you want to give towards that mission. And until you have reason to suspect uh, that the money you're giving is not going towards that mission, then you, you know, you're not wrong in that. And there wasn't necessarily a really strong reason to not believe, um, or at least in media reports, the popular media reports, uh, um, what, uh, what, what was happening with Black Lives Matter, where the money was, how the money would be spent, or how um, things would shake out. I don't think anyone in 2020 would have thought that the you know, sitting here in 2022, that we wouldn't even know who the leader of the Black Lives Matter Global Network Foundation is. So, um, so that too, you, you, you see in hindsight. Just want to make sure that um, we're able to move through our callers as well, because we do have a few people that we're waiting patiently to ask questions. So I believe uh, Hirotsu has, has the next question. 
Hey, what's going on? Can you guys hear me? Hey, what's going on? Uh, yeah, thanks for doing this as always. Um, I guess I'm still not really clear on um, how, you know, they were, you know, uh, color, uh, uh, colors and, and, the, and the others were able to, to, to get that much money. Like, like I guess it, it kind of seems like to me like they feel that they deserve the money in a way because they help brand BLM. So, like, was that a part of their job? Like, what um, were you able to get, like, their history? Like, how were they able to, yeah, to, to basically, you know, um, garnish so much? Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. It seems well, like, yeah, that, that was their goal. Yeah, thanks. Well, so, so um, again, I want to speak for them in terms of their goals or anything like that outside of what they've already said, just, you know, black liberation. Uh, but how it's they're the most popular, most well-known Black Lives Matter organization, and they position themselves as the net, the ba- the network. I mean, it's in the name that would be uh, funneling money to all the local chapters. So, when you're looking to donate, until you have a reason to not believe any of that, and there were the, a lot of the media reports in and around the time um, were laudatory of uh, the organization and i think that's you know i think that's the reason why i'm talking to you guys right now is that uh, uh, uh that it's mine is not laudatory mine is critical um so until those pieces get, were out there uh they people will look and they donate to what seems like the biggest organization that can funnel the money to the people on the ground doing the work uh and that's as it was covered in media. Uh, that was the Black Lives Matter Global Network Foundation. They were really placed as this is the group, uh, kind of at the head of everything. And in many ways, uh, they were not on the ground doing the organizing like some of these. Things. So, um, so can I ask a follow up yeah. question? Um, sure. So, uh, so what is their what is their pedigree? Because it's it seems like that's a very difficult thing to do without help or without some kind of like skill, mm-hmm. to, uh, or maybe it was just sheer luck. Um, but they seem to have managed it fairly well for themselves. Yeah. So, I mean, people become voices uh, in a number of ways. Um, skill, luck. I mean, again, the, the, the phrase ha- Black Lives Matter is so succinct and on point. And I even said it, uh, I said it online, like it's, it's a statement of fact, it's an extremely strong statement of fact that you can't really question. Uh, but no, but it hadn't been phrased exactly like that in that way. Um, so that's, and they've, they've even done some writing about hey, Trevor, some of the- Trevor, what are you doing over there, bro? Are you, are you sorting mail? My mic was off, but I guess when I turned the mic off, the phone then picks it up because I didn't think you even hear that. <laughs> oh, my bad. So, so, you know what? Yeah. Let me mute it from, from, from the app. Oh, good. Sorry. Go ahead, Sean. Yeah. Um, so uh, what, what I was saying was, uh, um, you know, skill, luck, um, positioning, um, any and all of those things can be true. Again, at the end at the end of the day, uh, it's what's the reality of the situation. Um, and the reality of the situation is, is this is what happened. Um, and aside from all that, too, you know, I'm in media. I know people in media. 
the thing is, is it's a very compelling story as well. We're talking about three um, women who are organizing and they're doing their best to combat all this. And then there's also um, the uh, there's identity politics and things thrown in the mix as well. So there's a number of reasons why, and they're charismatic and they're eloquent, and um, they, they were they're uh, um, uh, uh, um, organized. So all of these things together makes for a um, very uh, conducive environment for the organization to be thought of in that way. Um, again, we're sitting here in 2022 trying to think, how could this have happened in uh, 2014, 2015? Fact of the matter is, is that happened, and there's a number of factors behind it. Um, and I do think that it is all all of those things. Um, you, ha you have charismatic leaders um, that are good with branding um, and know how to talk about an issue. Uh, and you have a very succinct and on-point message and phrase. Um, and uh, um, you have uh, uh, all of these things just coming together that people are going to write about that. And when the more people write about it, the more um, those people get put into the position of, oh, this is the organization, this is the network. And not to just say that as well, but that's also how chapters and things could flock to them. Uh, is because when other groups are organizing and looking to who am I going to turn to, to um, really, uh, uh, um, you know, fly my banner under, they're going to look to the group that's being uh, covered in media. Um, Tory Johnson, for instance, he sent me emails where he'd been reaching out to uh, Black Lives Matter, trying to the organization, trying to figure out how he was going to um, be a part of them. Um, he didn't hear back on them, but he'd been sending emails from 2020, um, from from what I'd seen. So, um, yeah. Uh, um, so what, sometimes uh, things can just snowball in that way. Um, yes, yeah, so this is the last thing, and I'll, I'll hang up. So I guess you know what I got from the article was that you know more scrutiny. You know, it's, it's it sucks to say, but like more scrutiny is needed um, for social justice movements because they're going to pull on the heartstrings of people and the goodwill of people. So you don't really want to be very scru scrutinous, like when reporting on it or doing journalism, um, but you kind of have to now um, because yeah, this is going to happen again, right? Yeah. And so I. Yeah, uh, I I would caution against that takeaway. Um, I mean, for one, the the central issue, transparency and where the money is going, that exists with this organization. That isn't necessarily going to be true with other organizations. You can look into them and you can see how organizations are organizing. Are they doing work on the ground? Anyone can do that before they donate, before they give. Um, Will there be issues with other organizations? Sure, there's been issues with nonprofits, uh, even outside of social justice. It doesn't mean that just because you find issues with one that there's gonna be issues with them all. There's a tr an issue with transparency and some a collection of facts that raise some concerns with the Black Lives Matter Global Network Foundation. That doesn't mean that every social justice organization is going to be like that. I think that is a way that people tend to think 
when they are thinking about giving. Um, but I don't think it's a right way to think. Uh, I've, I've even I've done stories um, or did a story before this one on uh, Doctors Without Borders. And in researching that, it was a very big concern in the humanitarian field that anytime there's a scandal in the human, humanitarian field, people stop giving not just to that organization where there's a scandal, but every single humanitarian aid organization. And I don't think that's the right way to think about things. I think we have an issue with a certain organization, and maybe in some port, parts we should be a little bit more due diligent in thinking about how we're going to donate. And if we have issues or if anyone has issues with the mission or organization, then give you can give your money elsewhere. Look into those places. Looking to see who's on the ground. Do you support what you're seeing uh, in the in the news for this organization that's happening in your hometown or in Cleveland or Chicago or wherever? You can still do that. And also, I think it would be remiss to say as well that social and racial justice. Sorry, did we just? Oh, sorry, yeah, sorry. It seems like we lost you for a second. Oh, did I cut out? Yeah, very briefly. You're good. Okay. Yeah. Um, I would say in the whole world of giving, um, social and racial justice receives a very comparatively small sliver of that. So I, I in no way would want to think that because I found issues with one large, well-known organization, that this is some way telling of the whole uh, uh, field or sector. If there are transparency issues, you can actually just go and see. Uh, there's... Um, uh, uh, Candid, uh, there's uh, Charity Navigator, there's plenty of sources out there that aggregate and collect information on nonprofits um, in this field and in other fields. Um, and you, you can decide where to give your money from there. If you see that a certain organization you might want to be giving to hasn't filed any 990s or that they're using fiscal sponsors for years and you're not comfortable with that lack of transparency, then you don't need to give to them. You can find somebody else that's doing that work that is filing in the 990s that doesn't have those same issues. It's not like you have to do like a PhD thesis in researching, but you can just check up on, on a couple of things. Um, so I, I, I do, I do want to, I, I do want to mention that um, because in my mind, honestly, the, the, the social and racial justice is really one of the biggest and most important issues facing uh, our country, if not the world, and in no way would I want my article to somehow hamper that movement. That is not something that should happen. This is one organization out of many. And and um, I want to say real quick. Uh, sorry about the papers wrestling, but the on the app. There's a mute button that's right next to the end room button, and I'm always scared to death of accidentally ending the room. So I tried to turn off the mic at the mic level, but I guess it doesn't work. So sorry about that. But I just wanted to say real quick for people in the room who are enjoying this, by all means, feel free to share this on your social media, text it to your friends. Let's get some more people up in here because um really enjoying the discussion. I think it's pretty good. And yeah, that's all I wanted to say. Oh, actually, one more thing. Um, I want to make sure that Sean still has time to stay with us for a little bit while we get through the remaining callers. Because we're a little bit over what I plan yeah. to go so far. Okay. Yeah, I could stay on for another 10 minutes or so. 
Okay, so let's try and move at a brisk pace then. Okay, Jason, uh, please unmute. Hey, what's going on, y'all? Hey, hey how Jason. you doing, man? Um, you know, always great to hear you. Uh, Trevor, I appreciate that you were clearly investigating the finances of Patrice Colors in real time. Should have muted yourself for it. Um, so I have a, a couple things to say, and then, and then I think a really big and important question for me. Um, I've written about some of this before. I also teach. I'm a professor at Carnegie Mellon. Um, I'm, I'm from uh, a welfare hotel in New York City and a housing project. I mean, this is all very close to home. And I noticed that there's a lot of qualifying that you do appropriately. We don't want to hurt social justice movements, for sure. Um, we don't want um, any investigative reporting or intragroup criticism to be used and weaponized by people in bad faith. I get that. And this is not new, right? Like um, the NAACP used to charge its chapter members, its, its local chapters for the national director to speak, and it was against the bylaws. Um, you know, people were demanding four-star hotels. There's a, I worked in civil rights. There's sort of a history of this, but the malpractice was never quite this egregious. Um, and so my question is really, it's not whether the donors were wrong in giving. I agree. They're not, and they shouldn't be critiqued. But it's why they weren't protected, um, because I think that you're describing a sort of naivete, you know, saying like, here we are in 2022, we wouldn't have known this. But it seems like a willful naivete that borders on complicity. I mean, once I saw her doing the electric slide at the L.A. Museum or whatever, you know, I started to see some of the programming. What I started wondering is why questions weren't being asked. You know, my, my, I liked your story quite a bit. But I was like, this seems quite overdue. And it seems like there should be several of these. And it seems like some of the pundits who are giving us um, these sort of layup takes, like, hey, can't you, if you don't see the straight line from Kaepernick to Brian Flores, you're not paying attention. It's like, yeah, we all see that. And I think with, with you're leaning hard into journalistic integrity and objectivity, and I admire and respect that. But there's also a sort of journalistic responsibility. And here I'm not attacking you. What I'm saying is what I take away from your story, a, a sort of subtext of it, is that the critical apparatus within movements and even within journalism is broken right now, that it takes this long and that one has to be this careful and doing work that I expected to be done years ago. Um, and I, I wonder if this is sort of a because I've been doing a deep dive on, on sort of Nixon's black capitalist strategy, right? And, and the vigorous discourse back then, people were openly critiquing each other. That does not happen anymore. Um, and I wonder what you think about that. I wonder if you think this is even possible to police a movement, not in a way that perhaps enemies of the movement would want, but in a way that's healthy and sustains the movement, if you can do that because of the money involved. Mm -hmm. uh, so... To answer the last part of your question, sir, uh, I will. I think I'm getting a little bit of an echo here, um, but okay, it's gone. Uh, I'd say yes. I do, I do think it is possible to police it. Um, I mean, again, part of that starts with really pushing for transparency within any organization, and then you check and see what's up. Uh, and the other part of, you know, should there, should there been a story. Uh, before this or question some of these things more rigorously? I do think so. I agree with that as well. Um, I can't speak to the motivations for other news organizations, but I saw in some coverage things that 
I thought people could have questioned a little bit harder. Um, I think with this, it's again, it's tricky when you have people who have literal skin in the game and wanting the movement and everything to succeed and then having fear that if you speak in any way against even just one organization that it would hurt the movement, that that weighs on you. I can tell you it weighed on me as I was putting together the story. Uh, like, I'll be honest about that. I, 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 I tweeted about it is that, yeah, it, it weighs on you when you think about it because that is, that is, and even as a question was raised here today, that can be a natural consequence of it is that you call out one organization, one big organization, and then people think like the whole thing is corrupt. And that's a lie. That it's something I don't want to see happen. I don't think should happen. And that can color how people might report on an issue or what they look into. I, I'm not going to say it doesn't. Um, so sure, it could have been things could have been written about sooner. Things could have been said um, in different ways, or there could have been interrogations. But I wouldn't call the apparatus, the journalistic apparatus, broken when people really believe in something, uh, or they want they want certain things to be a certain way. And there is also a lot of, and that's part of the job, I think, of investigative reporters, is when you bring more things to light that maybe you know, I'm the I'm the guy who spends five six hours looking through the financial audits and putting them all into a spreadsheet and then tracking that over time. Uh, the daily reporter doesn't have the time to do that. Um, so those kinds of things, when you bring those issues up, then, you know, that's when things can shift, things can change. Maybe people question a little bit more. Um, so that happens a lot, even with, even outside, I will say, of social justice movements, outside of this movement in particular, in other areas of investigative reporting, there's sometimes red flags or things that are talked about um, within communities or even reported on locally uh, that once the news story comes out, once the investigative report comes out, it's like it all seems so clear of why wasn't this talked about more back then or in this way. Um, and sometimes it's just people weren't connecting the dots or people had maybe a certain hesitancy to connect the dots. I don't know exactly why uh, things – a story like mine um, that deeply interrogated and did good faith reporting um, on really trying to figure out what was going on here uh, didn't happen. But – Again, we are where we are, um, and the, I think that's something that I would focus on more than anything. Um, so, if, if, if that if that's a, a valid response to, to that, uh, I've, I'm I'm open to pushback on that side. If that, um, sure, sure. I'm I'm not going to push back. I'm not you know calling yeah. in to be combative, and I appreciate the story um, deeply. I, I will say I, I doubt that you would give a take as to. Um, what you think people's motivations are, you've made that clear, and I, I think you're right, you shouldn't. Um, what I am curious about is this. Um, I'm haunted by a conversation I had with a former classmate um, in college where I asked her about some of these difficult questions and why she never talked about it on Twitter. And she said, you don't have to talk about everything, Jason. I noticed that she had 70,000 tweets 
and she was retweeting <laughs> 700 articles a day. Yeah. But she somehow selectively realized that you didn't have to talk about everything, which yeah. is to say your um, sort of a careful treading seems to me like a sincere commitment to the movement, not wanting to injure it, and also to your profession. Some of this careful treading, if there were more reporting, I wonder if we might find out what happens when there are hundreds of millions in play, uh, both in the industry of, of anti-racism and the lecture circuit that accompanies this stuff, um, and in the reporting, and when people are working together um, on stages, <laughs> debating each other, supporting each other. I, I wish there would be some more disclosure about the money involved, because I think that could clarify for some people why sometimes people are silent and other times they're extremely vocal. And that's something that frustrates me. Anyway, thank you so much. Appreciate your time. Thank you. I just want to point out that Jason rightfully pointed out that I should have muted my mic and I forgot to mute his. So I just want to hang a lamp shade on, on that, Jason. But by all means, go on, Sean. Oh, no, I just said thank you. Um, and, you know, as a reporter, I'm always in favor of more transparency rather than less. Yeah, and Jason's a friend of the show. I'm just, I'm just busting his chops. Yeah. But um, uh, I wanted to say something real quick before Amy came on, which is um, when when Jason was talking about um, giving a little too much benefit to that, that is one thing. One thing I did want to uh, push back on, but it was very minor when, when you said that um, Patrice Cullors noted that she had multiple outside sources of income, including mm. two book contracts, a media production deal, and, you know, a paid speaking arrangement. And, you know, you mentioned as a rebuttal of the Post story's more sinister implications, it's um, persuasive. But I personally didn't think it was that persuasive for the mere fact that all those contracts, the media production deal and paid speaking arrangements came about because she was considered the voice of and the leader of a, of a movement. So I feel like uh, even her um, alternative source of incomes excuse, I feel doesn't really like hold um, weight for me. But that was just like one sentence in your article in passing. But yeah, that was. A, well, and I'd also say, too, that to that it's because uh, basically what you know, the posts and some of those uh, um, other stories um, were in some ways alluding to was that there's uh, malfeasance going on there. Um, and as an argument of it being persuasive, I mean, it is persuasive when somebody has multiple sources of well, uh, uh, of generating a lot of income. Um, yeah, it's extremely persuasive because why would you need to direct funds from the nonprofit when you have these other income streams. Now, I think what you're getting at is um, a different kind of an argument there, which is, is there um, a certain entitlement to be able to make that kind of money, um, being as uh, it only comes about as a result of the organization? Um, and uh, uh, my story doesn't really get into that. Uh, but I'll say, you know, leaders do get paid often for writing books, for doing speaking gigs. I don't think that's a bad thing. I think it can be an issue if the leadership is not authentic leadership. So I, I'm not saying that that's what's happening here, but that's where issues come about 
is if what you're selling is not exactly what you've been doing. And so that's where there's an issue. And with the story, as, as I've written it, there isn't too much reason to not say you, you had this organization, you had this, um, you know, you had this, uh, 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 hashtag and everything like that. Um, and you wrote the books. So it's no reason that you shouldn't profit off that. Um, oh, okay. Sorry. Uh, Amy was about to ask a question, but it looks like the, did that was that was that was my fault, uh, Amy. I accidentally bumped mm. you. If if you don't mind coming back up, I was trying to make Antonio next after Amy, and I was, said I could accidentally bumped like, Amy. You, like, like a bouncer mushing somebody out of the VIP <laughs> line to the club. <laughs> All right. Yeah, Amy. Amy, sorry about that. Um, yeah, Tone Tone can ask the question, and then we can bump Amy up to the uh, the next next next, next speaker. Um, what's up, Sean? Um, wonderful work. Um, I think we we changed a couple of messages. Yeah, you know, I think I think we're we're underselling this story right now. Um, I, I recommend, and I sent this to you as well, Sean. Tablet Magazine did a wonderful article. Is Warren Buffett the wallet behind BLM? Mm-hmm. And it goes all the way back to 2013, and looks at this National Domestic Workers Alliance that Garza worked at, where Warren Buffett's children, through Novo, gave a bunch of money to the National Domestic Workers Alliance right when Garza starts working there in 2013. And that is the nexus of BLM. So when we start looking at this story, the bigger question that starts to be asked is, are our black politics captured? I get everybody doesn't want to deal with it and wants to talk about book deals and everything else. I don't know if everybody here knows. I'm not an expert in Hollywood, but I was nominated for an Emmy. If you look at Patrice Cullors' IMDB, it does not add up to million-dollar payments. I'm not saying she can't have a deal where she shows and proves, but that doesn't pay for those homes. And I feel like what happens right now is we are, we are afraid to be honest about what this says about our Black politics and how that ties to our lack of wealth. Um, you know, I come to you, Sean, and I just ask the question, yeah. you know, because we, we ourselves at ADOS, I, I co-founded a group called ADOS. We brought reparations national stage and we de- and we're dealing right now harvard had to retract the paper where mm. they attacked us at that same school alicia garza went there in 2019 and attacked us as well and i asked you the question does as you dug into this how much pushback did you get back from your editors or and you also alluded to in a tweet but it wasn't clear the greater black circle of twitter sphere you said that there was a, about sexism and I believe racism. Mm. So that in particular was that part was uh, a, um, a conversation that I'd had that I noted in the story um, with the uh, actually with Asha Bandelay, um where just when I'm asking, um, so I'm asking about the money. Basically, the whole section was reform LA jails. Uh, why were you paid two hundred and eleven thousand uh, dollars? Why was Patrice uh, Colors through uh, Janaya and Patrice Consulting paid two hundred and five thousand um, dollars? Also, Crispin Bowers, Shamala, Shamala, Bowers, Shalomia Bowers. I was in trouble with that name. Um, and uh, um, Trap Heels 
LLC, why they were paid. That was where, and that was very affecting for me to have by insinuation that I was somehow racist or sexist, because uh, that's exactly what she said repeatedly, um, was that the questioning was racist and sexist. Cool. Um, oh, sorry. That was Asha Bandley, and that's in the story. Okay. Um, and that's, to to hear that um, was very affecting for me because, I mean, yeah, like I've, I've had, I've had, I've had a, 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 in some ways a difficult life and just because I'm doing my job and asking questions to hear that, I mean, I've been called a lot of things. I've, I've been called the same things. I'm sure you guys have been called as well. Uh, and it didn't bother me as much as that did. Um, so that's where, that's why I mentioned that in my tweet. That was what we mentioned in the story. Um, that was kind of one of those late editions where, I mean, I, I, I did, I talked to my editor afterwards. I was like, man, I got to take a break. I've been working, um, especially with the timeline being that this is a print magazine piece. I've been working, talking to people, reporting and writing for towards the last two, three weeks, uh, like 12, 14 hours a day. Uh, and then, and I'm just trying to get the facts right trying to find out the truth as much as I can. And then to hear that from a black woman directed at me, um, it hurt. Uh, so I, I had to like take a break and I talked to my editor about that. So that's where that came from. That was that specific incident. And it's still, I still think about it because at the time, like I said, it was hard to report on this in a critical way. Cause I, I did, I did when I, in, when Eric Gardner was strangled, strangled, I was in the streets like I wasn't a journalist back then, but you know, I like, I didn't even feel right for like a month or two, like even just going around with my daily business. Right. Like it was, it was, it was a troubling time for me. And before getting into this story, like if you would have asked me if I would have donated money, I probably would have donated money to the black lives matter global network foundation. Cause I, it wasn't something I was deeply involved in digging into and really piecing apart. So yeah. And just how it might, affect the movement or how it might be perceived as affecting the movement. Again, that was, that sentiment was raised here on this panel. Um, so those things weigh on you, but at the end of the day, again, my job is my job, which is to tell the truth and to really put that stuff out there as best I see it. And, uh, to the other point about questions from my, from my editors, um, I don't want to talk too much about the editorial process, but there really isn't as much pushback in terms of what to include, not to include, um, as I think people might perceive. The, at the end of the day, what everybody wants is something that is 100% accurate and fair. Um, so that's what we strove for here. If we didn't have something bulletproofed or 100% locked down, we did not want to insinuate anything. And that's why I'm even avoiding any kinds of insinuation here because it's not fair to insinuate if you don't have the facts and details to back it up. Um, so that's, that was something that we were very careful about in doing this and putting everything together and having receipts and conversations with people to back up what was uh, reported on. And, and this is, this is the only thing and I'll, I'll leave it yeah. at this is, you know, as a leader of a group in American descent of slavery that was basically smeared, no one asked about fairness when it came to us. 
Yeah. You know, when Joy Reid called us disinformation or when Harvard, they only retract two in every 10,000 papers. Harvard had to retract the paper within a year. They take decades to retract yeah. papers. No one asked us whether it was fair. I, I wonder, do we get to a point where how many homes does it take before we stop asking about fairness and just realize we don't? maybe we don't want the truth here? Because I feel like when we look at this thing, are we all clear on the impact this might have on black political movements for 50 years possibly? Because as we raise money, it's very likely that our money now will have to be restricted. But this is the problem. What if we, like, if, if, if true, going even beyond looking at the tablet article I told you about, if we didn't control the money, why are we having to be responsible for the failure? I mean, if it wasn't all Patrice and it was actually white capital, what, what does it mean for organic black politics to have to hold that bag? If we weren't mismanaging it entirely, like, why isn't Thousand Currents and Tides and Novo having to hold this today, but it's just black organic politics? And as a result, you might see people only give us restricted cats going forward. Mm. I hope not, but that's what I'm seeing. Yeah, I, I mean, how people will interpret it. Um, yeah, I, I don't, I think some things could be unfair. doesn't have to be that way, because again, this is just... This is one organization of many, and you know, sorry to sorry, sorry to hear about your organization, and things are unfair. <laughs> that's one hundred percent true, um, and and I could say that 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 is a fact that's out there, that's in the world. The best I can do is control what's directly in front of me, and make sure that as I report things, as I talk about things, that there aren't any holes that can affect the larger truth and i'll Thank still you. say it I'll, I'll still say it you know people can don't if you have issues with this organization you don't have to give to it you don't have to organize under that banner you don't have to do any of that stuff like you there can be other uh uh, uh um black organizing in and around even locally when i talked to kwasi kondo dr kwasi kondo I mean, he was. He told me one of the big things is none of this is new either. This happened in the fifties. Well, at least the the tension between local and national. This this kind of thing happened in the fifties, sixties, seventies, and local black power politics was extremely effective in the seventies uh, in getting things done on the ground. And that didn't come from uh, needing a larger national organizing body. Uh, so there is those things can be done, and I don't think it's fair. Whether or not it happens is one thing, but I definitely do not think it's fair that because issues are found with this one black organization, that that somehow speaks to all black organizations. That is not true. Uh, one thing that I do want to say about that, though, and uh, thank you, Antonio, for thank you the questions. Yeah. Uh, appreciate it. Oh, I I feel like grassroots local black organizations had problems before this and they're going to have them after and what i think is is this i think local grassroots black organizations are going to have the same problems they always had but i think black lives matter and that tablet article that antonio mentioned kind of shows the amount of connections that alicia garza had with um you know people like warren buffett and power players and like and like um I think it was called uh, Nova was, was the organization. I think mm-hmm. when the next group of plants comes, because I think to a certain degree, Black Lives Matter were plants, 
they're going to have it easy all over again. I, I think the grassroots uh, kind of organic black organizations always had problems and will always continue to have problems. And, and I think that the Black Lives Matter Global Network Foundation is not really going to change that because it was never good for them. But I think sooner or later, there's going to be another group of kind of uh, controlled opposition is going to come up and they're going to be pushed all over again. And I think, and again, I know you can't say this because you're being objective, but I, so this is not Sean's words. These are mine, yeah. you know, but, but uh, that's, that's my person. That's my personal thought. I think it's going to be easy for who the powers that be needed to be easy for in the future. And that's, that's all I'm going to say about that before moving yeah. on to. Uh, well, I'd also it, say too, just hmm? to that, like we're talking about it and people by and large, like we don't have to accept, accept something that we're uncomfortable with. Like we can, if you're, if you don't like organizations being led by people that receive corporate donations, again, you don't got to give to them. You don't have to, you know, um, promote them or anything like that. And that's not true for just people in this conversations, but people anywhere. I think part of, and you know, we talked about it a bit in the story, um, that corporations, once they do get involved, once they do give money, they do have a way of changing the messaging. It's just, it's something that's endemic with any uh, organizational movement. With the more dollars that they put in there, they, they can uh, change and influence things, uh, or there's the potential to at least. Um, but I don't want to think that we're powerless against pushing back against that. And just because things are that way now that they always have to be that way okay and real quick i don't know if there's yeah. a way to close to close the queue so i just want to say that everybody who's up here uh we're going to try to get through everybody but um please no one else um go up because i know sean said he had to go soon yeah, so we're, we're writing a, a, a quite long now we're almost a, yeah yeah we're going to, going to have, yeah we're going to have to go uh Bristy, but uh, Sean, on your end too, you got to keep the answers kind of shorter too, so that we can Sorry. get through get through everybody. My bad. So, uh, you know, no problem. I'm no just problem. At the time myself, it's, it's <laughs> I, you know, you get me going on something. <laughs> okay, uh, Amy, please, you've been very patient. Um, if you can just uh, speak real quick, you're in the speaker section, but we'll just roll with it. Oh, is Amy able to hear us? Amy, Amy are you there? Can you hear us? You know, it's weird. Neither Q nor I put Amy in the speaker section. We just noticed she was in there. So I think it's just a... loaded right on up. Yeah, just promoted herself. That was, um, <laughs> that's so sure. maybe that same glitch is keeping her from being able to talk. So, so let me right. let me um, remove from from the speakers. Sorry about that, Amy. You can come back up, and in the meantime, we'll have M speak. The powers that be just do not want Amy to weigh in tonight. Uh, go ahead, M. You can unmute. Uh, peace, y'all. Can you hear me? Yeah, we can hear you. Great. Work. So, uh, I have a... Cool. Okay. Um, my room probably read the rest. Thank you, Sean, by the way. It's really interesting. Yeah, you Wait, that's more of that weird glitch for Amy. I guess she was talking, and it came through after the fact, so... Yeah. Oh, that's weird. Okay. Yeah, so, so that's a program glitch, glitch, Amy. That's not us. For some reason... It's it's effing with you, but yeah, come back up to the speaker section and we'll put you next after M. Sorry about that. Again, it's not us. 
Peace, y'all. Um, yeah, I just have a quick question. Uh, two quick questions. One of them is, uh, I think a thing that was big for me is when I found out that that the Black Lives Matter Corporation founders were not the original people to coin the phrase Black Lives Matter. And it was a guy named Marcus Anthony Hunter, uh, uh, who's a sociologist in California. First question is, did you come across that in your reporting? And the second question is, um, back when I want to say Mike Brown's father started talking publicly about not receiving BLM, BLM really, I want to say released a statement saying that they don't, their main thing is that they, they don't give money to victims of police violence. Uh, they said something like that. And I want to know if you came across any of that. Uh, and that's mm -hmm. all I got. Yeah. So the first part of the question, I did not come across that. Um, again, Pew did track the phrase Black Lives Matter as it appeared on social media, uh, like hashtag Black Lives Matter. Um, so I did not come across anything uh, predating uh, that use before. Um, not to say that it wasn't there or that it was said in the lecture or anything like that, um, but I did not come across that. Uh, also, I did not come across anything where Black Lives Matter said explicitly they do not give money directly to uh, victims of police violence. I don't believe, I may have read a lot. Um, I, there were statements where if they were promoting a GoFundMe um, or something along those lines, that they were not in control of those funds. Um, so that's uh, um, part of that. Um, and when it comes to Mike Brown Sr., um, and the statement of Tory Russell, um, that, that part, I, I'll say they made their demand, and as I understand it, they came to an agreement, but I don't know what the terms of that agreement were. Um, they being a Black Lives Matter Global Network Foundation, and, uh, Tory Russell. That's how, how it's been reported and talked about. I reached out. I did not receive a, a response as of yet. So I don't know the terms of that deal. So I can't speak to it. If there is a deal. There is. But they, they came to an agreement. Got it. Thank you. Can, can you hear me now? Is it working? Yeah, we can hear Yes. You. Oh, awesome. Okay. Sorry. I'm really sorry about the weird glitch. I think it's probably because I'm in like a really rural area trying to call in. Um, it's just such an interesting topic. And thank you so much, Sean, for staying. I'll try to keep this really brief. I just want to say there were red flags. And I think there's reasons that people didn't feel comfortable bringing them up. Like for, for me as like a non-black person, I definitely didn't feel comfortable um, trying to interfere in that kind of thing or like doing a, like a call out or, or even just pointing, you know, pointing, you know, you kind of want to be an ally and show solidarity and support. Um, but I wanted to point out, you know, like even, even Sarah Kenzior, who I'm not, you know, like a huge fan of her work, but she did write, you know, the Ferguson Inc. piece, which went, I think that was in like 2015. There were, there were people like Douglas Williams, who's a, like a labor journalist writing about um, stuff with D. Ray McKesson and Teach for America and stuff like that. And then in 2018, you know, BLM Cincinnati wrote this uh, statement about why they were leaving uh the, the like official Black Lives Matter blanket organization talking about what it was like um, at the at the convening. And, and that was public. And they were saying like that they felt uncomfortable with the way that 
demands were dictated from the top and also the way that it directed away from the families, which I think people were talking about here. And I think in in my point of view, some of the nonprofits just didn't see victims' families and their kinds of demands as like trendy enough or as compatible enough with the kinds of, um, you know, things that they were pushing. And it seems to me that part of it is that victims' families often feel very strongly about punishing the cops that, you know, kill their family members. And I think that that was not necessarily compatible with, um, you know, some of the kind of broader uh, abolition stuff. And I think it's it's really difficult because a lot of times these goals, like, you know, like a 50% defund or a demilitarize or something like that. I think when, when this movement was at the, at the heat of it, there were a lot of people who were speaking on behalf of organizations who weren't even willing to entertain like a sort of um, something like a partial defund or whatever, because it was like, oh, it's, you know, it's insufficiently abolitionist. But then if you look at like what's come out of any of this, it's like very little um, concretely has been accomplished. So what I wanted to ask is like, um, I know you interviewed some of the activists who were, who are, are not part, you know, who were kind of put pushed by the wayside, you know, as, victims' families as well, but also um, I think, what's the person's name, Taylor, who you interviewed? And I wondered Tori. if you've, oh, sorry, Tori, yes, at the very beginning, yes. And I wondered what you feel about, like, do they feel silenced? Are they still kind of organizing? What's what's the perspective of, do they feel uncomfortable as well in terms of trying to, you know, criticize the stuff publicly? Or is, is there some sort of, you know, because I, I think it is difficult. Like, you don't want to come off as if you have all the answers or, or whatever. But I also think if we don't criticize it publicly, like, I feel a lot of guilt that, I didn't promote some of the. Amy, I think you, I think you might have cut out there. Amy. Fitz got her. Fitz got her again. It's not yeah, as much, yeah, but yeah, yeah. yeah. Oh, there you are. I was going to say I think we've got enough to uh, for you to be able to respond to Sean. Yeah. Um, so I will say yes. Uh, so there had been things that had been raised, and these issues. Um, had surfaced before you said 2018 um buzzfeed had even mentioned something a uh, similar thing in uh 2016 i believe it was uh and then i uh talking with the organizers um you know we're talking 2015 so and i've talked to other people too where it's almost like from the beginning um there have been some of these issues that have been brought up and discussed and talked about um so i do think that a lot of what you said there uh, is true, Amy, and I think it has some merit there. Um, but there's and there's also just as things come up, um, how people can respond to it, or even thinking about what to respond to, or how valid something uh, is. Um, that can be challenging for folks. I mean, we even deal in an era of fake news, which flattens the truth in that people aren't even sure what necessarily to believe in certain ways. So if you come across something that goes against your beliefs or what you're thinking, um, you, if you don't know otherwise, you might not trust it as much. Um, so, and I, but I will say people had been speaking out, maybe not as vocally um, before this, as again, you pointed out, Amy. Um, and there is that challenge once, once something gets to be a certain size, a certain mass, um, that it's for one hard to talk to. And then I think they can all, the, the size of whatever the organization is, um, by nature of its size can drown out 
um, things that it doesn't necessarily want to say because your uh, your voice is just that much louder. Uh, Great, and Gabriella, we're, we're moving through these pretty quickly. So yeah, Gabriella. Um... I'm yeah, I'm gonna do it quickly. Hi, Sean. Great story. Uh, as a reporter, I definitely saw all the work in there, so did not go unnoticed. Uh, but that said, I, I you know I, I think one of the things you touched on, which is why I came back, is that you know here's my reporting. You don't have to support this, but I think the issue is that this is the Black Lives Matter, right? Like I don't think you can. I don't know. I feel like as a journalist, it's kind of hard to just be like here, take it at face value, and you don't have to you know donate to the organization because it is sort of the you know, colloquial or the, just sort of the ubiquitous brand yeah. for the whole movement. So that said, do you feel like, do you feel pressure now or do you feel responsibility to kind of like report follow-ups, right? Because we heard people on stage being like the media, right? Like as a, just a collective hasn't written about this and we know now, yeah. you know, we know how editorial works. So we know why this happened, but yeah, just that's kind of my question is just like, do you want more reporting? Do you want more, just like the media as a whole to report on this more critically now that, you know, you sort of broke the ice, I guess. Um, yeah, I mean, I think I think reporters should do their jobs. Is what uh, I, I'd, I'd say about that. Um, if there's issues that people think merit some looking into, then they should look into them. They shouldn't be afraid not to, because um, again, at the end of the day, like the idea that we're all going for is the truth, and if we think something isn't true or that there's something that's being hidden. I think it's our job as reporters to suss that out. Um, and I do, you know, you read this story, others read the story. Um, to the, 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 my story, um, not only because I want to, again, I, I want to be fair in everything that I've mentioned and what people have had the opportunity to respond to and not respond to. Um, but there are issues as the experts have seen them with this particular organization. Um, in terms of the larger movement, it's probably the biggest player in the movement. So that that is also true. And I do think the movement, the modern civil rights movement, um, does deserve a degree of coverage on all sides that does it justice and not taking easy ways out or what might be convenient ways or convenient stories and repackaging them and retelling them. Okay. And final uh, caller, Michael, thanks for being so patient. Uh, hi. Uh, thanks, Sean, for your great article. Um, and I get, and sort of my question is a little bit similar to Gabriella's, though I just want to ask a little bit more about it, is like, mm. I really appreciated, you know, how thorough you were in your article. And then I'm listening to sort of a lot of your comments here that are sort of urging caution from reading too much into the article. It's what it seems like to me. Uh, so I, I do want to pause there. I, what I caution against is applying what's been found with this organization against the movement. Sure. That's a conflation that I think needs to. Sure, sure. I, thank yeah. you for for uh, yeah. for clarifying. And, but I guess like my question is sort of yeah. is a is a, again sort of about this about the follow up of all of this because it's like on one hand we shouldn't maybe we shouldn't like um, 
assume the worst about Black Lives Matter Global Network or Patrice Cullors or Alicia Garza or Opal Tometi or whatever because they haven't had a chance to respond. But it seems they have had a chance to respond. They've chosen not to. Yes. But like, so, but in the meanwhile, there's like $60 million just sort of sitting out there. There's people from various organizations around the country who are upset that they haven't gotten money. There's people you reported on who are like, I'm still homeless and I'm fighting for black lives. And there's, and then these other people have like all this money and book deals and stuff. And so it just makes me think about something that Trevor has asked in the podcast has asked before is like, what are the actual gains of Black Lives Matter at this point. It's, and I know that like we're trying to make this demarcation between the organization and like the movement itself, but I just find it that um, difficult to do because the people involved are still out there like doing quote unquote movement work, but they're mm-hmm. also like you know, profiting. And so I'm just curious about if your thoughts about that or if anybody else has any thoughts about that, because I just feel like there's a little bit of a, a conflict for me in this. Yeah. So, you know, there are issues raised in the article uh, prompt people who have more power than me to investigate and do other things, and then more power to that. And they can say things more definitively one way or the other. Um, and to the other point, uh, of, um, and that, I'd say that's also true of any journalism. Uh, anytime you write a story, even the best investigative piece, it's not like journalists have any kind of legal authority or power in that way. Like we empower other people to act. Uh, we're not maybe not empower other people to act, but give people the knowledge that they can act, whether they be, you know, private citizens like everyone on this call, uh, or. Um, organizations like um, uh, um, that operate in states or wherever uh, because they have this information. Maybe they can now look into things in certain ways. Um, and the the point of like what, like uh, I think it's a, a question of you're getting at like what have we wrought or what have we gained through all of this? Um, yeah, I think that's a larger movement question. It's a little bit out of the scope of the story, but what I'll say is that at the very least, we're getting people in terms of the movement put in jail. I mean, it takes something as egregious as videotape evidence of a man killing another man, but he was convicted of murder. And the stuff with Ahmaud Arbery, at least those guys were convicted. And I do think, I know, you know, before... Uh, um, our current day those kinds of things happen with extreme impunity and at least there is in my perspective, my view at least things seem to be talked about and discussed in such a way that um, it's putting more onus on to police and there is I will say I do not think enough, not nearly enough, but there is at least some um, enforcement that is happening that a decade, two decades ago would not even have been thought of. Um, so I, I don't think like it's 
again, just because there's issues with one organization or there seems to be issues with the one organization or you have issues with one organization, that it's to say that nothing came of the movement. I do think more should have come, but I think that's true, you know, going going back decades now, right? So um, I don't want to lose too much heart just because one there, uh, of one story about uh, one organization. Uh, I do think there's still a lot of good work that is being done and can be done on the ground to move the needle. Yeah, and I just want to just end by just saying this though, and this is not out of not of, this is sort of out of your purview. You did your reporting mm-hmm. and all that, but I'm just like it still seems to me in the midst of all of that that there's been this like incredible amount of money that's been raised that's literally just going to sit there. And I just well, we, wonder. I just I just wonder about that. Like that just seems like really crazy to me. Uh, I, it seems crazy to me too that there isn't a stated leader who's behind all of it. Um, and just because it's there now, believe we don't know what the future is going to tell. I'll say that um, we don't know what other other information might come out or um, what the organization itself will announce. Um, but I do think it is. And even talking with experts it is unacceptable that there isn't a clear answer as to who is uh, controlling and directing where that uh, 60 million is. And we're talking 60 million after the other amounts that were pledged, uh, just again on, on the face of it, saying that all those monies were dispersed or put out or sectioned off as they were supposed to. Um, that I do think is unacceptable. And I think nonprofit ac- experts would agree there should be some sort of leadership or at least a clear announcement of what's being done to say what's happening with that 60 million. Um, my personal final thought is I really do appreciate the article and the work, but um, what kind of depresses me about it is that despite all the good investigating that was done and everything, it kind of bothers me, and this is not your fault, but it bothers me that they've already kind of taken the money and run. So it's like, it's good that this has finally come out, but I also feel like, uh, so these people, they um, ran roughshod for like, you know, six years or whatever. And I really am just worried about, I hope that the next time around, um, you know, we as a people are able to kind of see these people coming, you know what I mean? And that's, and that's my big fear is that um, whoever the next people is, whoever the next people that get kind of put there, don't get to do it again. And Mm -hmm. I don't even just put it all on, you know, editors, journalists, uh, reporters, whatever, but just regular people on the ground. Like I remember if you tweeted anything negative or said anything negative about any of these people for like years, everyone would kind of like uh, gang up on you. I remember when Darren Seals was saying what he did, everyone just called him a hater and jealous. And I think it's very easy to they just abdi- a abdicate. And yeah, exactly. And I feel like it's very easy to abdicate our responsibility as people on the ground and give it to these gatekeepers like say, Oh, you journalists, you reporters, uh, you academics, you should be spotting these guys. But I think a lot of regular people had their own complicity and, and, you know, a lot of it starts with us. Like, I think 
early on, even if a reporter did do all this stuff, they would have just been harangued and um, chased. You know what I mean? Called a traitor and, and all sorts of things. Yeah. Exactly. And, and those are my final thoughts on, on it. And I'll let you two give whatever final thoughts you have. I feel the same way. I think that um, for a very long time when people asked about what's happening with the money that's being raised with Black Lives Matter, people would just shout them down and say, you know, why are you attacking black people or why are you attacking black women? Why are you attacking black queer people and so on? So it, like the identity became a deflection tool to keep from asking what were very reasonable questions i.e. you're raising all of this money, what is it going towards? What What is the money that I'm donating to your organization? What's it, what's it paying for? Um, another thing is that we have a, like, a very classist division inside of black communities, and I don't think a lot of people pay attention to that. So the interests of, like, what I call, like, the striver class of black people, like, these are, you know, like, the the upwardly mobile, like trying very hard to get ahead, trying to land corporate gigs and speaking gigs and so on. Their interests, as far as I've seen over the last several years, uh, rarely line up um, with the interests of black working class people that are subject to police brutality, violence, that are the most exposed to it, the most vulnerable to it. And um, by inserting their own stories and their own conversations and speaking for and over the masses of black people, what it ends up doing is turning the entire movement for black lives, the movement for, uh, you know, tearing down structures and revolutionary politics. It turns it all into a farce that rather than having a structured and substantive movement that has a solid ideological purpose, and grassroots backing, it becomes a campaign for people to get jobs. And, you know, T talks about the next time around. I personally hope that there is never a next time around, that if there is a mass uprising and a movement one more time, that we pay more attention to what's happening on the ground with, with black people who are engaged in, in movements and revolutionary protests on the ground, and that it doesn't become... And the, the corporatized movement, I, I, like I called it right away. I think I, T, I'm pretty sure I told you this on the day that it happened. Remember when, when there was that blackout Tuesday? And that's where like the um, 2020 uprisings seemed to almost turn on a dime, where the conversation was basically yanked away from working class black people to like the black petty bourgeois working in corporate offices to talk about how much they have felt the sting of inequality and oh, oh, oh yeah, and there were all these stories about Glee and you know the yeah. actress and and all yeah. these weird stories about that. Yeah, like how celebrities have been wronged by their coworkers and all, all sort of stuff. And now we're at a point where corporate brands feel that their contribution to Black History Month is to release a corporate logo with some kente cloth colors. So that's all I'm going to say about that. Is that you know we saw that coming. The instant that like the Shriver class yanked the conversation away from from working class people, so I hope that there isn't a next time around that we don't have to engage in mass uprisings in the streets. But if we do, that we are a lot more attentive to who's holding the microphone. 
Um, just want to make sure we get your final thoughts, Sean. Yeah, yeah. I, I, uh, I'll say this. I, I'll say this before we go to Sean. I think you're being too hard on things, Q, because you acting like we got nothing from the George Floyd thing. But every streamer I go on now has a row about Black Lives Matter and a list of movies and shows. So now I can find the black movies and shows easier. So I, I took issue. I, I don't with know that. if you saw and, me post. I don't know if you saw me post a uh, a tweet the other day. Um, I I've gone to the Apple Store to download an app for this like smart scale that my wife bought, and I saw this little section in the App Store, and it said "Stand Up to Racism." I was like, "What?" It, was, <laughs> it said "Stand Up to Racism," and then it was like the icons for a bunch of different apps, like CBC Gem. Audible, PayPal. I was like, what the fuck is going on here? Like, What did that have to do with racism? That's weird. Okay. Yeah, all these, all these companies band together and start making donations to some organization that I hadn't heard of. And then I, I tapped on it to go look at the section. And I was like, yeah, use PayPal to send money to your favorite activist organization. Or use oh, wow. me to raise money for your local community. Um, listen to CBT Gem, where... Our host B Kwame takes you through like the intricacies of black culture. I was like, what the fuck? I'm standing up to racism by consuming content now. This is this is where we're at. So yeah, mm. I'm not giving enough credit. You're right. Uh, 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 so, so, so final thoughts, Sean. Yeah. So I'll say to that too, and we kind of point to that in the piece as well. Is that yeah, with George Floyd, um, kind of that uh, that activism became fashionable um, and. You know, there's also Dr. Conadu there saying, you know, what the corporations are doing and what some of these larger national groups like Black Lives Matter, what they're doing is trying to sell the idea that uh, activism, police brutality, all of the issues that affect the black community is easy. It's not. Very hard, complex, and it takes a lot of work. It takes more than just, you know, streaming a certain movie on Netflix buying, uh, you know, some Kunta Kente cloth, like you're saying, that somehow supports the movement or any other branded product. That's what the corporations are selling. But just because they're selling it doesn't mean that we're, we need to buy it or anyone needs to buy it or needs to support it. So um, that's what's going on there. And we do talk about that. And I, I do not like it. Uh, I'll also say, too, that for the $16 million and however many funds are out there, it's not like that money is gone. And it is, it's also not like there aren't laws that govern how that money could and should be spent. So it's been given and it is in one place, um, but it's not like that money is just poof out into the ether. Uh, it is at least in one area and there should be an accounting for it. And there are rules and regulations that govern uh, its use. And if there's any findings that that is a, has not the case, uh, then there should be consequences for that. And that should be a lesson to anyone else who might try and do that if, if any of those things happen. Um, but I, I, I want to push back into the idea that, that the money that's donated is somehow gone. It's not gone and that it also can't still make its way to other places um, or be utilized even by the Black Lives Matter Global Network Foundation in a way that um, enriches activism uh, in the Black community. Um, so I will, and, and, and as you guys have pointed to, and as I, I said at the top, um, I am being, I'm talking in a way that I want to be able to be sure to speak to 
everything that I can cogently speak to, and that's within kind of the bounds of my reporting, but also letting you know, like I do, I, I feel a lot of what other people are saying as well, but I don't want to overstep in terms of me saying things um, that I haven't necessarily found outright or other people haven't had the opportunity to respond to. And that's also not to say that there won't be more reporting on this uh, issue, this topic, um, uh, just because this one story has been done. Okay, so we want to end it there. Thanks, everybody, for joining us. Thanks, Sean, for being so patient with us tonight. And everybody have a good night, and we will see you again next Thursday. So take care. Be good. All right. Take it easy, guys.